Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Passages of Summer edition of the 7 a.m. Novelist. I'm Michelle Hoover, your host. Now, we all know that the early pages of a novel or story, essay, or memoir are really difficult to get right. So this summer, we're discussing the choices that went into a range of authors' first pages in terms of scene, structure, language, etc., and how those choices might help you with your own first pages. Today, we are really lucky to have Paul Rudnick, and he's going to share the first pages of his latest novel, Beryl Covington and the Limits of Style. Good morning, Paul. Hi, how are you? Thanks so much for being on the show. Paul Rudnick is a novelist, playwright, essayist, and screenwriter whom the New York Times has called one of our preeminent humorous. His plays have been produced both on and off Broadway and around the world. He has won an Obie Award, two Outer Critics Circle Awards, and the John Gastner Playwriting Award. His novels include Social Disease, I'll Take It, Pain the Palace, and the YA novels Gorgeous and It's All Your Fault. His screenplays include In and Out, Sister Act, and the screen adaptation of Jeffrey and Adam's Family Values. His newest novel that we're going to be hearing from is Farrell Covington and the Limits of Style, and it was just published in June, the month that I'm actually interviewing him, um, and it was published by Simon Schuster. All right, Paul, thank you so much again for being with us. Can you give our listeners a quick summary of the book before you, we hear your first pages? Oh, absolutely. It is an epic romance. It takes place over at least a 50-year span all over America and the world. And it was it's as funny and sexy and juicy and passionate as I can make it. It's between two men, one of whom is the son of one of the wealthiest and most conservative families in the country and an aspiring author, a kid from New Jersey. That's all you need to know. Fantastic. Okay, let's hear these pages. Okay, here we go. When I arrived at Yale, I had no idea who Farrell Covington was. In 1973, as a middle-class kid from the New Jersey suburbs, I had no idea who anyone was. As the child of an office manager mom and a physicist dad, I'd been encouraged to apply to Ivy League schools, but with Jewish fears attached. I should strive to succeed, but expect obstacles. As a gay kid, my image of Yale was based on Cole Porter songs, satiric novels with upper-crust characters named Tad and Muffy, and photos of any university from Oxford to Harvard with stalwart brick buildings surrounding leafy, sun-dappled courtyards strolled by students wearing button-downs with Shetland sweaters knotted around their hips, along with news footage of fist-pumping, shaggy-haired undergraduates of the 60s staging die-ins the, on the steps of the law schools they were attending. I was installed in a dormitory suite chaired by Breen, a tall, scowling uber-Republican who'd already draped an American flag outside our window, and Walt, an affable and outgoing guy from Connecticut, who, while sheepishly, sheepishly enjoying golf, also played bass in a band called the Wild Stockbrokers. I'd never lived with anyone but my family, and I was deep, dimly aware of my freakishness, from wearing thrift store gabardine shirts to sporting the blow-dried, feathered mall hair of my Jersey heritage. My exposure to gay life consisted of the following artifacts. Best-selling Gordon Merrick paperback novels where dashing, strong-bodied men, often surgeons and senators, would rust lustily with each other in penthouses on champagne-colored silk sheets. After Dark Magazine, which was not officially gay so it could be sold on newsstands, detailed every aspect of show business 
with an eye to placing semi-nude male ballet and Broadway dancers on the cover, shielding their crotches with, say, a straw boater or a violin. And porn magazines called Inches or Blue Boy or David's Thing, which I'd buy in fluorescent lit Times Square smut shops and tuck into the lining of my fake fur parka for the train ride back to Piscataway, a town named for the Piscataway River in New Hampshire. Not making sense doesn't bother anyone in New Jersey. I never felt guilty about my reading habits. I adored these varied publications and took them as proof that glamorous sexual gay lives existed. Gorgeously lit black and white photography, along with stapled pages of raunchy or hardcore doggy style couplings, were delicious promises. I was a virgin in so many ways, innocent of physical sex, except for constant masturbation, Brooks Brothers mattress patchwork blazers, natural blondes, and especially the seriously wealthy. The richest person in Piscataway was a contractor and low-level mobster who'd built his own stucco-drenched faux Mediterranean compound with an in-ground pool and a three-car garage to hold the van enabled with flames, the Chevy station wagon, and a few mammoth Harley Davidsons. In New Jersey, money meant not taste, but more stuff. For my family, Money was something to be strenuously fretted over, encompassing mortgages, used cars, and two August weeks at a beach house far from an actual beach. None of this could be debated in front of me and my older brother. I was the recipient of student loans, which I had no real grasp of. I knew we weren't rich, but I'd never really lacked for anything except a Barbie doll, which a well-timed tantrum eventually achieved. Glossing over things and hurriedly ending adult conversations when a child wandered in was my family's rule for anything monetary, sexual, or grim. For example, illnesses and deaths. The agonizing politeness and denial could be suffocating, but weirdly helpful for a gay teenager. No one was asking me any squirm-inducing questions. Knowing no one, I spent my first weeks at Yale investigating the campus, walking everywhere, and wondering if I'd ever make any friends. I had vague theatrical ambitions as an actor or playwright or simply someone who would call other people darling. So I pushed myself to attend a freshman orientation at the Yale Dramat, the largest and most well-funded drama club, which availed itself of a gloomy but full-sized theater, ordinarily the province of the illustrious graduate drama school. Meryl Streep and Sigourney Weaver were enrolled at the time. And yes, just from watching them in misbegotten Chekhov and midnight cabarets, everyone predicted where they were headed. People who'd never met them and never would were already referring to these performers as Merrill and Siggy. As I perched on the arm of a battered leather green room couch, two seniors introduced 30 assembled wannabes to the joys of painting scenery, taking box office ticket requests, hand laundering costumes, and other forms of grunt work. We have a proud history here at the Dramat, chirped the female senior, a perky administrative type in a feral cardigan, kilt, and knee socks. And we also have a heck of a lot of fun, added her more bohemian male counterpart, wearing white Levi's and a stretched out black cotton turtleneck, aiming for James Dean in moody rehearsal wear, and landing as a preppy who dared to smoke pot in his parents' finished basement. Oh, 
my set of voice that had the oddest and most elegant calibration of Midwestern graciousness and crisp New England diction. It was a voice that could only be classified as mid-Atlantic, that invented MGM mode of sounding unplaceably fancy, as if the person was forever flinging open the double doors to a well-appointed drawing room. The voice was manningly, but somehow naturally affected, as if the person had been raised by a bottle of good whiskey and a crystal chandelier. <laughs> oh, that's a perfect place to end because that's a perfect line. <laughs> <laughs> well, then that enter Farrell Covington. <laughs> and then wonderful. Oh, and, and, and then we get, okay, wonderful. Um, raised by a bottle of good whiskey and a crystal chandelier. I mean, there's so many wonderful details here, Tad and Muffy, that just makes you giggle. The band called Wild Stockbrokers, I don't even understand what they would sound like, but I think the, the detail is amazing. <laughs> I, I don't think I'd buy their records, but otherwise. Is, is there actually a porn magazine called David's Thing? Because that's just so on the nose. <laughs> I know. that. Actually, those were the, the more polite titles that I used, and they're all real, and almost all of that happened to me, but it was, um, yeah, and it, it was almost quaint. If you looked at any of these publications now, they would seem sweet. They would seem like porno coloring books, but yeah, there was one called, they were also guides because that was still at a time when so much of gay life was sort of underground and forbidden, so these yeah. magazines would have plenty of naked pictures. They'd also have listings for the bars and restaurants where gay men might want to hang out. Okay, right, right. And then also the helpfulness of, of the family politeness um, for a gay teacher because they don't ask the questions <laughs> that he doesn't want to answer. I think that those details are great. Your style is just on fire. It's almost like you're riffing off of these incredible details. You have rather long sentences, but they're just delightful. They just kind of prance along. I mean, can you talk about your writing style? Yeah, it it is it's helpless at this point. Actually, that was one of the exciting things about writing this book. It deals deals with a lot of topics that I've been sort of juggling for many years, and they I couldn't quite figure out where they would fit. And when I started Farrell Covington, I just let it flow. I let it rip. And when Farrell appeared at that point in the narrative, a few pages in, it was completely unexpected. I had not planned for this character in the slightest, and I just held on for dear life. So that's kind of the, the structure was this accumulation of everything I've ever written before, everything I, I've experienced, and a sense of absolute freedom for my imagination. So it was it was exciting to write. It was it, it felt new in a way or even a little bit earned that, OK, I've been at this for a while. I'm going to try to show off my skill set. Wow, that's amazing that he just kind of arrived on the stage for you to use. I mean, it's interesting. I um, I don't know if you've read um, Alice McDermott's Charming Billy, but something similar when she she was yep. writing and then her and she didn't realize that she was writing in first person until her oh. narrative voice ba basically said I. And then, right. then it changed her whole idea of the book and what the book could be. Um, and so and so you just kind of let yourself. I wouldn't say blunder, but I guess that's that's a good thing. We all let ourselves blunder into these details. You had you thought that this might be a book more just about the main about the narrator, Nate. Yes, well, I certainly he was someone because he's a lot of what happens to him is somewhat autobiographical. So I thought, okay, I know who this guy is. But I thought, no, that's he's um, 
somehow needed to have a fire lit underneath yeah. him and weigh it all over him. And that's what the why Farrell, I think, commanded himself into being, that there was a sense of, okay, this isn't a memoir. This isn't just a rote history of times I've experienced. I want this to have a real scale to it. And I think for that, you need a genuine hero. And that's what Farrell supplied, that he was somebody who I wished I could be, someone I admired, someone who terrified me, someone who was absolutely magnetic in many ways. And I thought, yeah, that's that's where this is going. And I did not outline the novel at all. I mean, I had some vague sense of several historical periods that I wanted to portray. But uh, beyond that, I let the book dictate where it wanted to go. And that's rare. And I think that I, I, I'm sure mo most writers would know this, that there are sometimes novels and they could sometimes be your best work, but that are painful and that are eked out a syllable at a time. This was not the case with, with Farrell Covington. This was a sense of, okay, this is a novel based on a life and this is cumulative. And this is something that needs to be unleashed. And wow. so it was, it was exciting. And it was, uh, it's funny, I actually, while I was working on it, I returned to some writing habits that I'd abandoned. When I first moved to New York a million years ago, I would write all night, you know, from like midnight till 5 a.m. And then I'd go to the bakeries the minute they opened, you know, so it'd be me and a firefighters and subway workers. And it was just an exciting way to work. Also, I was doing all, every possible job to support myself during the day. But then eventually I became more of an adult and worked during the day. And on this, I couldn't keep away from it. I was writing all day. And then I'd go in with my, my husband and say, okay, we're going to go to sleep now. And I'd sneak back into my office and say, no, 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 one more page, you know, one more chapter. So it was, um, you know, I trusted it, which is, you know, yeah. your instincts can be terribly wrong, but sometimes once in a while they're right. And this, and you said, you said this, uh, experience is rare and you're talking probably just in general the novel I'm working on now is like pulling teeth I've I've, I've every day I'm like it's just a painful but I believe in it and I and I like it but it is a very difficult novel for me to get across so but when you're saying I think it's rare in general it's that wonderful way of being able to write in that kind of fever and it, it sounds like it's also rare for you oh absolutely I think yeah. well one of the most exciting and terrifying aspects of being a writer is that every project is so different. You're always starting from square one from that blank page. So you don't know what this one will be or how difficult it will, it will take be in, in, in birthing itself. But it was, um, yeah, this one, there was a pleasure to it and a drive. There was a forward motion that I just trusted that I thought, okay, this is, not just what I wanted it to be, it was what the book wanted to be. There was that sense of surrender. And that's, yeah, that is rare for me. And I think for most people, I would wish on everyone that everything would flow freely and uh, achieve instant perfection, but that's that just doesn't happen. Um, yeah. Writers would have nothing to complain about and we do <laughs> like to complain. So, <laughs> yes, yes, we do. Yeah. Um, what, in some ways, it, not fully, but in some ways it kind of reminds me of Great Gatsby because you have this kind of regular kid looking up in adoration of, of Farrell Covington. He becomes almost a Gatsby-esque character, a kind of larger than life 
character that almost begins to take over the book. It takes over the title. Yep. <laughs> um, and and yet um, that kind of character can't really be the speaker of the book. They can't be the narrator because they're usually too wild. They're usually too <laughs> they're yep. usually too nuts. Uh, Charles Baxter talks about this idea um, of a captain happen, the character that's willing to say anything and do anything. And you need a character like that in a book in order to make the story happen. And it sounds like uh, Covington is your is your character. Now, when you went back um, to so you 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 set you set out on fire, you're on fire, your style is on fire. Um, did you how much? What's your editing process like? Do you work with uh, writing groups? Did you work with Esmond? By the way, everyone, we actually happily uh, share an agent. So that's very fun. Um, Esmond Harmsworth. Uh, did you go through a lot of edits with him or with the final editor that you had? How did you go about? And the sad thing is sometimes we have to kind of rein in the fire a little bit, a little bit. Yeah, although I, I adore rewriting. I kind of live to rewrite because I think that's when you also feel Okay, there's there's a basic shape that's that's been accomplished. Now let's fine tune it. You get to be a mechanic. You get to go in and fiddle endlessly. And I love that. I think it's it's also one of my worst nightmares is always that I'll have sort of vomited out a first draft and then I would be hit and killed by a bus. And someone <laughs> will find that draft and think I thought it was good. And I'll be in wherever I will be going, no, 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 no. That was a draft. Um, but yeah, I'm, with Farrell, I, the first person I think I showed it to was Esmond Harmsworth, our wonderful yeah. mutual agent. And he was enormously helpful because he is one of the people who I absolutely trust, which is such so necessary for any writer. The person who, where you don't worry, oh, has he got a chip on his shoulder? Has he got an agenda? You just think, no, 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 this is a voice to listen to. Um, and it's usually the kind of thing where even if there'll be a, a note or two where I'll get my back up and say, I don't agree with that. You have to put your ego aside because he's almost always absolutely right. So, yeah, there was a section in the middle where he pointed out that the the narrative had gotten to had sagged a bit and where I took a, a, a detour. And so I I immediately thought that's completely true. And I started cutting. And then I <laughs> had editing fever where you can't cut enough, where I love saying, let's eliminate everything. But there really was a sense of, of okay, once you step back and have that perspective where you go, no, this really is not necessary. This really is slowing things down. And a sense also with this particular book that whenever the story strayed too far from Farrell himself, it suffered. So even there, because there were great separations in the in the plot, even when Farrell was in a different country, in a different state, there had to be a way of making some form of contact. And that became kind of a wonderful challenge. There was, I remember after Edmund's first set of notes, inserting a whole new chapter, which ended up being one of my favorite th things in the book, when the way the two, our two leads intersect when they've been forbidden to have any contact. And it just... It was it was just Esmond's notes were beyond useful. And then Peter Borland, my editor at, at Simon and Schuster at Atria, is an absolute godsend because everything he said was equally, um, you know, not just useful but essential. Right. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's important to have. I, I know other people are are very comfortable with listening to a a grand range of voices or all the people in a in a writers group. But for me, I. I think because I tend to be a little scattered, I need to focus on, okay, here are one or two or three people who I know I should listen to. 
Yeah, because it can be too many voices and take you in too many different directions. Yep. You know, that's interesting. It sounds like with the effect of the book that these two men, um, you follow them over a, lo- a long period of time, but they create um, what an author that I oftentimes teach, he refers to as this idea of a signature. It's kind of a, a, a central line or a, a central spine down the book. And he also refers to Mark Twain's um, Huckleberry Finn. And he says that whenever um, Huck and his buddies uh, are away from the river too long, because the signature is the river, it's actually a physical thing in, in, in Twain's book. Anytime the characters are away to, from the river too long, you can feel Twain desperately trying to get them back to the river and desperately trying to get the novel back on track. Um, so you had to kind of deal with that as a way to get these men together or get them talking or get them, or, or is that kind of how, because they basically create the central core, the relationship it does of the book. Oh, absolutely. And that became clear very early on that this this romance needed the the greatest possible passion and the greatest possible obstacles so yeah. that because nobody wants to watch anyone be happy for all that long so <laughs> it's um so yeah it was a wonderful challenge of okay what's going to separate them how will they deal with that how will they deal with that in a way that is in no way c- cliched or expected that was also a rule i made for myself was at every turn because the stuff they come up against including things like the aids crisis are formidable and tragic and overwhelming. And I thought I never want it to be what the reader thinks it might be. You know, Mm -hmm. I never want to kill off the character who seems like the obvious choice. Um, So that was was also a a great form of of pleasure for me that it was, okay, what, I guess there's that other, um, I I don't remember who said it, and it may be apocryphal about sending your characters up a tree and then throwing rocks at them. (laughs) (laughs) The question of, okay, where's the tree? What are the rocks? But with these guys, I knew in order also for the romance to be, to convince the reader, they had, those guys had to need to be together despite everything. And Mm -hmm. that became kind of the engine of the plot. And what you just said is absolutely true that it had to be about how could these guys be together despite everything? Mm-hmm. And 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 feeling even even possibly as you wrote, if they were too apart for too long, then you might oh, have yeah. been on a tangent that you needed to get them back um, some way to relate with each other. You know, I love that you're covering a lot of time, which can be very, very difficult, but it seems really necessary with what you want to do because you're also covering all of these changes, um, political changes and um, changes in the way that... Um, gay men are treated and, 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 and the way that gay lifestyles are, are considered. Um, and so it feels really necessary to be able to kind of paint that history. Um, and it, it's just kind of a, a, a gift for us to have, but it is difficult to cover that much time. Did you feel that? Because I always, I always think about uh, one of the most difficult things in writing is to convince the reader that um, time is passing. Um, so that we actually feel time is passing, but then also not going into summary mode too much or or how much do we skip over and what do we choose to keep? So how did you manage time throughout the book? Well, that was, it was why I knew this story had to be a novel because I've written for the theater and for movies. And, and while you have an immediate visual control in those things, passage of time is far more difficult in those mediums. Because right. if you're dealing with actors who you don't want to put in terrible gray wigs, 
you know, it's tricky and there's usually a far narrower focus, especially in the theater. But in a novel, you have that uh, absolute gift of time. And because mm-hmm. I knew this was going to be an epic, I thought, okay, I want to know. It's also one of the few gifts, not few gifts, but rare gifts of getting older is you've lived through a lot of experience. So stuff I was writing about, I knew about. Sometimes when I read other historical works, I think, oh, this is an educated guess, or I could see the homework showing. In this case, it was, no, I was there. This is my take. Um, so that I, I couldn't wait to kind of dig into each era and to see what changes were made, but always through the lens of these two guys, of Nate and Farrell, so that it never became a lecture or a history book. It was always about, no. And also, so they always had that sense of surprise to it, of, okay, when you were actually going through an epidemic or an opening night, or then the way, I think when people are very young, everything is monumental. You think very tiny things matter more than anything in the world because that's what you know. And as you get older and you realize, okay, now I know a few things that really matter, that can really knock you flat, that can have take lives. Um, so it was the sense of, okay, let's see that entire arc. Um, and even, it's funny, even with the, um, there's the, the section uh, on AIDS, uh, my partner's a doctor. And he told me early in our relationship, because he knew epidemiologists, that epidemics, all of them, have a curve. That when you're in the middle of the mess we were with COVID, you think everyone's going to die. This is the end of the world. Yeah. But if you actually have a medical background, you know, as horrific as these illnesses are, they lessen. And then you can't remember what it was like during those awful months. So that's with all of everything that happens in Farrell Covington, you know, both celebratory and not so much, there was a sense of, okay, make this very fresh because it's happening to the characters for the first time, but also place it within this larger context of very full lives. And I found that exciting. I always knew from the, as soon as I started the book that that was one of my goals, was the passage of time. And also what's fun in a book too, is that it's a little like cinematic editing when you realize, nope, we're done with this particular period. And yeah. you can get, you can leap 20 years in a sentence. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I mean, I always think of it being one of the great difficulties of a novel to be able to cover that much time. But for you, it was a release because you can't do it in the other forms that you've been working in. Yeah. Um, you also said that, Nate started as a as a character very close to you and that it almost felt you said you had to tell yourself that you weren't writing a memoir because it was surprising you I mean did it did it did Nate continue to be very close to who you were and and how did that help you or hinder you as the story continued well it was a mix because some of the um episodes some of a section on Hollywood for example or section on New York theater are things I've experienced and that I've written about in nonfiction. But that was, uh, but I was never quite satisfied with that. I really wanted to, for this material to be much more emotionally rich than that, which is you can achieve in nonfiction, but I found it that it felt a little bit dry to me. So what I wanted to do was take some things that I lived through and really examine them. And that, but that's why Farrell and all the other characters were so necessary because it wasn't just, here's what happened to Paul. You know, and um, it's why it was very useful to have autobiographical elements, but they in no way ruled. And also what's one of the other great 
joys of writing a novel is you don't have to stick to absolute accuracy. Usually that's pretty boring. You know, I think reality is something we're all far too familiar with. You know, I love the ability to transform, to say, yes, this happened, that happened, and then here's the magic as well. Absolutely. You know, I, I work with a lot of um, a lot of writers, a lot of novelists. I myself, I, I've tried to write nonfiction and I anytime I do it, I just begin to veer from the truth. And I'm like, oh, this isn't really working for me. I just oh, yeah. I love the form of fiction and I love the truth that you can get across in the form of fiction. But a lot of writers, particularly um, historical novelists, they will hold themselves back and say, well, it needs to be historically correct and, and, and historically correct to the point of such minutia that I think, you know, does this really matter? I mean, <laughs> you know, just you can't, you know, can you move away from this? Um, and then I, I, I think about authors. Um, so Jim Crace's Being Dead, which is one of my favorite novels, it starts with two dead bodies on a beach, which sounds really kind of depressing, but it's actually really beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> and wonderful novel. Um, and he, and this also sounds depressing, but he writes about how the bodies break down in terms of the animals that come at them and the insects and all of that. Um, and everyone loved it. And they're, and they're like, well, how did you know all this stuff? How do you know all the science? How do you know about all these insects and anything? And he said, I didn't, I made it all up. And the fact that you couldn't tell means that it worked. And when he, with that answer, I'm like, oh my God, he really did make it up. And, G and Edward P. Jones also talks about this when he wrote his novel about um, uh, uh, black slave owners um, in the late uh, 1800s in uh, West Virginia. He said he had a sabbatical that was a semester long and he had a choice that he could either do research of the history during that sabbatical or he could just write it. And what he decided to do was just write it. And he said, I think I know enough. I'm just going to go with it. And, and, and it won a Pulitzer Prize. Um, and so he was able to just, and both of these men, I, I feel like I can't even do quite that much, but both these men were able to release themselves from um, those, those ideas. Jim Cray says, fiction is the stuff of dragons. Why can I make stuff up? Um, so for you, this became a real freeing experience that you're able to go off of the essay form, that's, or even the memoir form. I, I've never quite, that you felt that that was kind of dry for you, um, but this was much more freeing, emotional, emotionally freeing as well. Oh, absolutely. Also, something you said earlier <laughs> resonated with me because I began very early in my life writing for magazines. And I was the worst journalist possible because, as you said, sometimes I'd want real life people to say something better, to say something <laughs> funnier, to give me a snappy last line for that that column. And they wouldn't do it. So some I was very tempted. And sometimes, yes, I would make it up. And I thought, no, 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 no. That's incredibly irresponsible. Fiction is a much better idea. The other thing I learned from were some of the wonderful actors I've worked with who, when they were in a period drama or they were playing you know, a surgeon or something far from their own experience, they sometimes would do research and they would then they would forget about it. Once they were on stage, they would assume that it had somehow, you know, come to live in their bodies and that would, um, you know, would would fill out the character. And that's how I felt, too, that I mean, it, most of what happens in this book are some things that I, I've I've lived through, but a lot of them actually aren't in terms of the way the very wealthiest families lived. So that was very much imagined. But I realized sometimes facts would surface that I I had 
been unaware of. I thought, where did that come from? And I realized, oh, no, 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 that was something I read 15 years ago in the New York Times. And mm-hmm. suddenly it became useful. So I right. think research has its place. But yes. if you get too maniacal about it and you make too many rules for yourself, oh, it's such a trap and you'll be so miserable. And so will the reader because they'll see you being dutiful and there's nothing worse. Yes, absolutely. Um, I just realized I'm working on a novel that takes place when a particular painting is being painted and it was painted in 1882. And in my research, I discovered that the transit of Venus was happening at the exact same time and that the scientists would be kind of, you know, obsessed with this idea. And I'm like, hmm, I wonder if I can use that. So right now I'm using that. I mean, in that way, the research can be really helpful. And you have these these things that come together in history um, that you hadn't realized and hadn't thought of, but it can really be helpful. Okay. I'm going to have to let you go. We need to get our our folks back to our writing desk. So everyone, um, you can find our full schedule on our Substack page at 7amnovelist.substack.com. You can subscribe there for updates. You can also find our full range of podcast episodes on that page, including episodes from our past two writing challenges. We basically have have more than 100 episodes out right now. And so I recommend that going back, we have a number of great writers and teachers talking about uh, novels and form and what they think is most helpful for writers. And so I think that can help all of you. You can also find all of those episodes on your favorite podcast platforms. And if you like what we're doing, please follow, rate, and review our podcast because that makes us look really, really special. And then other people want to find us and listen. Okay, Paul, one last question. Now we've talked about a whole lot more than your first pages, uh, which I've loved. Um, but what advice would you give to authors when they're wrangling with their own first pages? Well, I would say, first of all, don't be precious with your work. Don't imagine that every word is gold. Also, don't imagine that you can't go on to the next sentence, the next paragraph until the first one is a perfect polished gem because you'll be paralyzed. So yeah, I would say no one's watching. Don't overthink, you know, let, let it loose. And there will be plenty of time to go back and rewrite everything. But just don't worry it to death. I mean, I think that's something that I've learned through the worst form of trial and error. Because sometimes you think, oh, my God, that first paragraph was such genius. That's good. That's Pulitzer worthy. And then you go back and you realize, yeah, if I cut the if I cut every word of it, you know, so that you just have to not um, get too overwrought about things. Uh, yeah, so and beginnings are, are very tricky, as I think every writer knows, that don't worry that your first sentence needs to sum up the entire narrative. You know, it may. You may have happened on that just naturally. But don't torment yourself about it. Um, and also, yeah, I think when you start a novel, it's like getting to know someone. It's you're seeing, oh, this is who you are. This is who you'd like to be. This is who I want you to be. It's, um, if you think of it as more joyous rather than as uh, the grim task ahead, you know, there'll be plenty of time for that, for, for clinical depression. But <laughs> I think at the beginning, you could have that sense of, I'm going to have a great time. Because also, I think sometimes some of the best books I've ever read almost feel like gossip. You feel like someone's confiding in you. You feel like this is delicious. I shouldn't be reading this. And so I think sometimes that's that's a fun way to inform what you're doing, to think, okay, don't worry about writing for the ages or writing for your parents or writing for your teachers. You know, except you. But um, just <laughs> write for what gives you, makes you giddy, what gets you high, which is, you know, none of this ever guarantees quality. But I think it's a good way to start. 
from pure pleasure. Absolutely. And it certainly guarantees it's a, it's against writer's block, I think. Oh, yeah. That, oh, yeah. That joy, that discovery. Uh, I'm always telling my writers, try to play a bit. Play, let yourself play um, because you can get to something really unusual, something that you didn't even expect, something that you can use. And then it does it just doesn't feel as much like you're pulling teeth. It's just a more uh, better writing experience. And then you can stay in your chair longer because you're actually enjoying it. All right. Thank you so much, Paul. I know this is going to be very helpful for our writers. And I hope you also have a great writing day. Oh, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. And you go where it tells you to go. But you never wonder why there is nothing here at all.